Good morning, brothers and sisters. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 18. Uh, I don't know what happened, but a couple weeks ago, all of our microphones in the church just stopped working. The Illuminati, amen? 5G towers. Uh, so that's why I'm going to be fairly heavily glued to this microphone. My, my other wireless mic doesn't work. Um, Mac, maybe we can even turn this down a little bit and I'll just try to be the loud mouth that I am naturally. There you go. So the morning that Jesus saved me, uh, I likely still had cocaine in my system. The world that Jesus saved me from was a world full of drugs, both buying and selling. It was a world full of violence, illicit sexual relationships, lying, cheating, stealing, scamming. You just kind of keep going down the list. Abuse. When I became a Christian, I thought that the church was going to be a sanctuary from that world. And in a sense it is. But in another sense, it, it wasn't. In the Christian South, at least, I came to find that a lot of those same sins that I experienced in the street life were alive and well in the church. They just looked a little different. Predators didn't wear dicky suits with A-frames and gold teeth. They wore khakis and uh, polos and those hats with like the fish hooks on the end, you know? Sexual sin, I found, was still alive and well in the church. Greed was still a major motivation for a lot of ministry activity. Lying and scheming was prevalent in the behind-the-scenes, you know, Wizard of Oz, peek-behind-the-curtain world of professional Christian ministry. What I came to see was the reality that sin in the streets and sin in the suburbs were one and the same. They just had different expressions. They manifested differently. So as a new Christian, I realized that I not only needed the Lord to cleanse me from all the junk that I had when I was a non-Christian in the streets, but that I also needed him to protect me from the sin that was going to be in the world that I would soon inhabit. I think that's a pretty good picture of what's happening with the Israelites here in the book of Leviticus. I think you can see that in chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. Turn there with me. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Now, as you'll remember, the book of Leviticus takes place while the Israelites are camped out at the foot of the mountain. They've just been rescued from slavery in the land of Egypt, and they're being carried by the Lord into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And at this point in their journey, the Israelites might be tempted to think that everything will be peachy keen when they get to the promised land. I mean, it's the promised land. It's full of milk and honey. It's where God is leading you. But the promised land was not without form and void before the Israelites got there. The promised land was inherited by a bunch of different people, kind of all falling under the same heading known as the Canaanites. And God would command the Israelites to clear all the Canaanites out of the promised land, but they would fail to do that, and God knows that. And so he tells them, as you are getting ready to go into this promised land, 
I know that you have a lot of junk built up in your collective consciences from your time under oppression in Egypt, but I also need you to know that you're about to walk into a world full of pagans. They're from a different world. They have different cultures and customs, and they worship different gods and have different practices and a different vision of what the good life is, which means that they have a different understanding of morality and ethics, including sexual ethics. I need you to know that sin is still in the promised land, and it's waiting to overtake you when you get there. You can see this again at the end of our chapters this morning, chapter 20, verses 23 through 24. So this is, this is a, a pericope closing off. It's kind of like there's a, the, the beginning of the, book, of the sermon in 18 and here at 20. Verse 23 and 24. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things and therefore I have detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess. A land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who separated you from the peoples. And so the rest of chapters 18 through 20 is all about this. It's about how the Israelites are supposed to live carefully in the land and take their moral cues from the God who saved them rather than the culture around them. And just like the rest of the book of Leviticus, the point of chapters 18 through 20 is be holy even as God is holy. You can see that quite clearly in chapter 20, verse 7. This is the recurring theme in the book of Leviticus. Chapter 20, verse 7, it says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to break up chapters 18 through 20 into two sermons. So this morning's sermon will cover chapters 18 through 20, and then next week's sermon will cover chapter 19. Why am I breaking it down like that? Well, Mac, do you have the slide up on the board? Let me show you. Let me show you. So uh, a chiasm is a structure of Hebrew thought. I'm not going to get super deep into all of it. But it's, it's all over Hebrew poetry, and it's, it's in all the rest of their writings, including their historical writings. And it's just a sort of pattern of thought. And it usually goes something like this. There are a lot of different kinds of chiasms, but this is the basic chiastic structure. A, well, go back, Mac. Mac. It goes A, B, A. So you visit something in the first line or in the first chapter or even sometimes in the first book and then you go to something else in B and then you come back to the thing you talked about again in A. Okay, so Matt, go on to the next one. So the structure of Leviticus 18 through 20 is is a chiasm, okay? Chapter 18 talks about certain things and then it moves on to talk about something different in chapter 19 and then in chapter 20 it comes back to what it talked about in chapter 18. So, next slide, Mac. So, the chiastic structure of these chapters is sexual immorality, the prohibitions. That's in chapter 18. Now, let me just pause right here and tell you, chapter 18 talks about more than sexual immorality. Uh, It talks about so much, in fact, that I just can't talk about it all, so I'm going to kind of zero in on that. It also talks about necromancing and and sacrifices offered to Moloch. But for this morning, we're just going to talk about what I think is the meat of the chapter, sexual prohibitions. Uh, And then in chapter 19, it talks about justice matters. That's what we're going to talk about next week. And then chapter 20, it comes back around to sexual immorality, and it talks about the punishments for the prohibitions that were laid out in chapter 18. Does that make sense, guys? Are you with me? 
I'm sorry if those of you feel like you're having flashbacks to, to your school days, a little lecture style there, but that's how we're going to break this bad boy down, okay? So let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, your entire word to us is good for our souls. It breathes life into us. It stimulates us and spurs us on to be more like your son, Jesus. So help us to have hearts that are full and happy and attentive to what you have to say to us this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay. Um, Human beings, we are inherently religious people. We were created by God to worship him. And what happens when human beings rebel is not that we go from being religious in nature to non-religious in nature. We don't go from being worshipers to non-worshipers. We just transfer our worship. We find other lesser gods to dedicate ourselves to, false gods. Now, one of the main gods that we worship here in this American pantheon is the god of sex. And it just so happens that the only way to worship this false god is to do things that the true God of the Bible calls abominations. Fornication, adultery, bestiality, homosexuality. When I say that these things are abominations, I wonder how that makes you feel. I mean... Does it conjure up images in your mind of hellfire and brimstone evangelists with thick southern draws? Does it make you think about movies that depict Christian preachers in a way that you would be ashamed of? I mean, isn't it bad enough that we're a group of really conservative Christians in Alabama? The word abomination just seems like we're laying it on extra thick, doesn't it? Do we have to use that kind of language? Doesn't it make you cringe just a little bit? Well, Friends, this is the word that God uses to talk about these sexual deeds in his word. You can see that in chapter 18, verses 24 through 30. Turn back there with me. In verse 24, God says, Do not make for yourselves excuse me, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nation I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either you or the native and stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were here before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. So, what you see in these verses is that the Lord knows that his people are very much capable of being influenced by the sexual practices of the people in the land where they are going to inhabit. And so you see this in a number of different ways. So in chapter 18, verses 
6 through 18, the Lord lays out prohibitions against incest. I'm not going to read all of that because it's like, you know, your cousin and your aunt and your step-aunt and your step-cousin and, and all these prohibitions against incest. And I think we all know what incest is, right? But the incest that's forbidden here is not just incest by blood, but also incest by marriage. Next, for you note-takers who are going to go back and look at this later, chapter 18, verse 20, lays out the prohibition against adultery and fornication. Next, verse 23, bestiality is an abomination. Next, verse 22, homosexuality is an abomination. Now, what you should know about this list in these verses is that this is not God's comprehensive, all-inclusive, no-no list for sexual misconduct. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later in the sermon. Some of these sexual deeds were forbidden for ceremonial reasons. So you can see that with uh, don't approach a woman who is in her menstrual blood. Uh, remember, in the framework of, of Leviticus, uh, everything that makes you unclean is not necessarily sin, although all sin makes you unclean. So the prohibition against approaching a woman while she's in her menstruation has to do with ceremonial uncleanliness because she's coming, you're coming into contact with blood and life is in the blood and all that stuff. Nevertheless, the Lord says it's an abomination because he's clearly forbidden you from doing it. And if you do it anyways, it's just a straight up act of rebellion. Now, some of these sins have also been prohibited already in the Pentateuch in uh, like the Ten Commandments. So you have that with adultery and fornication. But other sins on this list are here likely because of their prominence in both Egypt and Canaan, where Israel came from and where Israel is going. Or to say it another way, these are the sexual perversions that would have most likely tempted the Israelites in their particular context. I have a pastor friend in the city of Baltimore. He's right in the middle, right in the heart of Baltimore. And his daughter goes to school at a public school there. And he tells me that, and she's in middle school, that half of her friends profess to be bisexuals. When I was deployed to, and by the way, that's unusual, even in larger metropolitan areas. When I was deployed to Iraq, a country that actually really and truly has a real rape culture, uh, it was very common, it was known, it's just common practice for young boys to be sexually abused there. It was also very common in neighboring states like Afghanistan. When we were in Peru as missionaries, uh, a fellow missionary told me about a stretch of mountains where he worked in the villages that dotted those mountains and how pedophilia was just a commonly accepted part of life there. It was just a normal cultural practice for the people in that part of those mountains. And the examples here could be multiplied, but the point that I'm trying to drive home is a simple one. The human heart is bent on sin. And sin will pervade every aspect of our lives, including our sexuality. But our desires, our sexual sins will take shape, they will take form, they will manifest differently depending upon our context. Your proclivity for sexual sin may express itself one way at one time amongst a particular people with particular customs, and it may express itself a different way at a different time amongst a different people with different customs. 
You know, there's a lot of conversation about nature versus nurture. You know, is it genetic or is it environmental, right? And one of the things that most good scientists will tell you is that a lot of it's genetics, but the, the genes won't be turned on or turned off unless it's in a particular context. Well, you can think of it the same way about our proclivity for sexual sin. We carry that gene in us, but the context that we're in can define how that manifests, how it expresses itself. And the Israelites, it seems, are facing the threat of the prominence of things like bestiality, child sacrifice, homosexuality. Now, let's get back to this abomination. You'll notice earlier I didn't define abomination. I think we all sort of intuitively know what the word means, but it basically means something that's hateful. For something to be called an abomination by God, it means it's something that God hates. It's something that he abhors. Now, why are these acts an abomination to God? Why does God hate these things? Well, friends, ultimately God hates them because these things are an act of rebellion against him and his goodness and his kindness and his love and his sovereignty. You see, Sex was not an afterthought for God when he made us. God made us to know him and to love him and to enjoy him and all of his good creation. The first command that God gives his people is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Go have a lot of sex and a lot of babies. It's part of God's good design. But like everything that God commands, his good gift of sex also came with boundaries. Boundaries for our good for our prosperity. And these boundaries are not arbitrary. God didn't just sort of tick off one a rule here and a rule there, just willy-nilly. God's design for sex connects to his design for the family. And God's design for the family connects to his design for society. And God's design is a very simple one, friends. You don't have to you know, do a, a doctoral thesis on what God wants you to do with your sex life. One man, one woman, committed together for life to the glory of his name. That is God's design for sexuality. One man, one woman, committed together for life in the covenant of marriage to the glory of his name. You see this at the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 2.24. And a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Later, when Jesus talks about this one flesh union, he uses it to sort of knock away any other idea that exists outside of this. Should we get divorced? No, you shouldn't get divorced because you're one flesh. You can't do that without damaging the flesh. Now, as I said earlier, this is not a comprehensive list of sexual sins. There can't be a list like that. Our ability to think of new sexual perversions is limitless. The modern pornography market puts that on display quite brilliantly. If God were to have a comprehensive list of every kind of sexual sin that we could commit, the the list would probably be as thick as our Bibles. So the principle that you need to take away this morning, when you're trying to ask yourself what is and is not sexual sin, it's anything outside of one man and one woman Together for life. God hates anything outside of that. These sexual sins 
I know that as Americans, we tend to think individualistically, right? We, we think that we exist in a tube that goes from us to God in heaven. But that's not the way it works. You'll notice that in this passage, God is not talking to individuals about their individual lives and the individual impacts that these sins will have. He's talking about them corporately. And friends, these sins must not only be not tolerated in our own lives, they must not be tolerated in the life of God's people. We see this most clearly in chapter 20, where the punishments for sexual immorality are laid out. So if you turn to chapter 20 with me, again, I'm going to kind of give you the breakdown. We're not going to read all these verses now. It's a lot to read. I would encourage you to go back and look at it more closely in your own individual study. But what you can see is that uh, the punishments are laid out like this. Verses 10 through 16 are for sexual offenses that demand capital punishment. Now you'll notice sacrifice to Moloch is in there. That's children's sacrifice. We're not going to talk about that this morning. You should know, though, that it's very much connected to sexual sin. It's no coincidence, brothers and sisters, that we live in America, a place that has trivialized sexuality and what God has designed it for. And in that same country, we sacrifice our children without even thinking twice about it. Well, the same thing is true for this ancient land of Canaan, right? They have a trivial view of sexuality, an ungodly view of sexuality, which means they have a trivial view of children, and they're more than happy to offer up their children to the gods of convenience. Okay, so that's 10 through 16, capital punishment. 17 through 18 are offenses that demand punishment in exile. Okay? And then verses 19 through 20 are offenses that demand the punishment of barrenness. The punishment of exile is we're kicking you outside of the camp. You're no longer going to be amongst God's holy people with God's holy presence. You're going to go out into the wilderness, the place of darkness and dread and judgment and death. And then barrenness is that's just God's divine judgment. Okay, Now, you're not going to have any children. Now, the, the thread that ties all three of these together is being cut off from the people of God. So there's three different ways that being cut off from the people of God can be manifest. But the heart of all three of these punishments is you're going to be cut off from God. So in 10 through 16, these sins that have been committed are so severe. They profane the name of God so dramatically. They are so dangerous to the covenant people of God that you being cut off needs to be immediate, swift, and severe. Capital punishment. Then in 17 and 18, this being put out from among the people, sent out from the, the, the covenant people of God, you're being cut off by being physically taken away. Your sins aren't so severe that you must die, but your sins are so severe that you must go. And then finally, in 19 through 21, these sins are significant still, but they're not so significant that you have to die or that we have to kick you out of the camp, but it's probably not good for your lineage to reproduce. God is going to cut off your people by taking away your children and your ability to have children. Now, friends, I understand that when you read sections like this in the Bible, I understand that they might hit you in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. I understand that sections like this in the Bible seem harsh to our modern sensitivities, I mean, we live in a day and age where if a kid participates in a sport and doesn't win, we still want to give him a trophy so that his feelings don't get hurt. How, how is it possible for a people with a mindset like that to understand someone being stoned to death? 
for committing adultery. Well, I want to give you three reasons why I think these things probably feel harsh to you and, and maybe why they shouldn't feel as harsh as they do, okay? Some of them are good reasons. Uh, some of them are bad reasons, okay? The first reason why it seems very harsh to you is probably just because you don't understand the procedures that are taking place here, okay? So stoning, believe it or not, was actually not commonly practiced in Israel. It was given by God as a way of taking care of very serious sins, but it was very often not practiced. Why? Well, first of all, because uh, anything that got to this point had to be on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Jacob couldn't say about Steve that he is committing adultery and then everyone just picks up a stone and stones him. It didn't work like that. Okay? It had to be a trial. There had to be a judge. There had to be two or three witnesses who were all willing to stand together and say, yes, we know for a fact that Steve has done these things. Moreover, when the stoning took place, it wasn't like in America today where we convict someone of capital punishment and then the professional executioners inject them or electrocute them or hang them, Oklahoma. Uh, it's not like that. Just like everything else in the book of Leviticus, these divine acts are carried out by the people. Just like the sacrifices weren't just all done by the priests, the people had to get their hands dirty, they had to clean up, they had to get blood on them. In the same way, if someone was taken all the way to the punishment of capital punishment, all the way to that point, those who accused them had to have a hand in stoning them. It wasn't just the, the Levites, the priests, who got together and killed these people who committed these crimes. It was everyone in the community. Now, obviously, it wasn't all 100 and 200 and 300,000 people, but it was very often representatives from the tribes, including those who brought the accusations. And friends, if you've ever seen videos, which are out there, and I do not encourage you to watch them, of modern-day stonings, which are carried out by the Nation of Islam, not the Nation of Islam, but uh, practicers, practices, those who practice the religion of Islam got it. Uh, if, if you watch it, it's, it's, a, it's a very terrible thing. It's a very terrible thing. It's horrendous. And if you've seen it done before, you know that somebody can't just pick up a stone to throw it without thinking twice before they do, without thinking three times, without thinking four times. I mean, isn't that the whole point of Jesus when he's interacting with this adulterous woman who's been accused in the crowd? And the crowd says, she's guilty. And Jesus says, okay, you pick up the first stone and throw it. The point there is supposed to be it's a weighty thing to pick up a stone and throw it at someone and kill them with it. And so it wasn't commonly practiced. So one of the reasons why you may be uncomfortable with this is just because you don't understand the way that it worked and the accountability involved in that process. Now, another reason why you may not understand or even appreciate what's happening here is because you don't have an understanding of God's holiness. It's because you don't have a right understanding of how dangerous and how evil sin really is. You think about a person suffering physical discomfort and pain for a time and then dying, and you think, how could we do that? But no one ever stops and says, how could we sin against God in this way? How could this man who cheated on his wife and destroyed his family and his children and sinned against the God who made him and loved him, how could he have done that? Now, I'm not saying that should make you okay with stoning people, that, like, that should immediately dissolve the conflict that you may feel in your heart. But I do want to say that if you understand the, the gravity, the weight of sin, and the holiness of God, 
It should sort of reorient you to this kind of thing, and it should help you have a better grasp of it. Now, another reason, and this is a particularly good reason, why you may not appreciate, or why you, why you may be uncomfortable with this, is because you live on the other side of the cross. You're not part of the old covenant people of Israel that practice these things. You're part of the new covenant people of God, the church. And in the new covenant, the practice of stoning people and capital punishment has been transferred over into the realm of church discipline. Let me take you to one text in particular that shows this, I think, pretty clearly. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, what is so significant about 1 Corinthians 5 is that it deals with capital punishment and church discipline and also sexual immorality, just like the verses that we're studying in Leviticus 16. Okay, so I think this shows the correlation fairly well. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So just like Leviticus 16 there's these pagan sexual practices that have been adopted in the church, and Paul even goes further. He goes, dude, I don't even know pagans who are doing this stuff, okay? Sexual immorality in the life of God's people in the church. He goes on, he says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. That language of being removed from among you is the same language from Leviticus 18 through 20. It's a language of being cut off from the covenant people of God. Now, the, the crime that he's talking about here, taking your father's wife, is a capital offense in Leviticus 18. It's a, it's, a, it's a crime that would be punishable by death. And so Paul takes that same language, let him be cut off, let him be cast out from among you. Okay, well, Paul was the Jew of Jews. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He knows the law inside and out. What does he tell them to do with a sexually immoral person who has committed a sexual sin that's so grievous that it deserves capital punishment? Well, we go on and read. He says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. No stoning. No burning with fire. No, no anything like that. He's turned over to Satan, which means he's put into Satan's world. He's taken outside of the church. Brothers and sisters, this is the language of excommunication. You have been decovenanted from the covenant community of God in the church. So the reason why you may not be comfortable with this stuff in Leviticus, one good reason is because you live in the new covenant, where these, these, these crimes against God are handled in a very different way. This is not a sermon on church discipline or excommunication, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this. Let me say, friends, God gives excommunication as a gift to the church to make sure that we remain pure, so that we worship his holiness, his, his holy name in purity, in the way that he has commanded us to worship him. And it is a sin as well for the church that fails to practice this thing that God has given us as a gift.
Now let me go on to verse 9 here in chapter 5. Go down there with me. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd have to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those who are outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Again, language drawn directly from Leviticus 18. Friends, I just want to give you quickly a a New Testament application to what we're learning in the book of Leviticus. It is your job as a member of God's church to purge sexual immorality from the church. It is your job. When you join the church and you want to get involved with ministry, people most often think about that in terms of putting on a t-shirt, reading a handbook, getting training, and volunteering for this or that or that thing, you know, VBS or whatever the case may be. But friends, your ministry that God has given you in the life of the church is to defend the who and the what of the gospel. It's to make sure that we preach and teach and practice true doctrine and to make sure that we live in light of the doctrine that we profess to believe. And one of those things that we have to be on guard against is sexual immorality in the church. And it's not just my job. It's not just Grant's job, who usually sits there, but he's gone this morning. It's not just Grant's job. It's not just the elder's job. Our job is to equip you as the saints of this church to do this right here. Paul is not saying that you can't come into contact with sexual immoral, immoral people in the world. That's unavoidable. He's not saying that you're supposed to judge people. You know, I thought about this morning going into a big long spiel about how we can love the sinner and hate the sin and we can judge things like homosexuality without judging the homosexual and, and so on and so on. But Paul says that quite plainly here. You're going to have to have contact with those people and you're not supposed to render any kind of ultimate judgments on their soul. You're not God. God hasn't given you authority to do that, but he has given you authority in the life of the local church to preserve holiness. And we must do it. Now, the final reason why these punishments might seem overly severe to you is because you live in a world that largely views community as something that is optional. Technology, the Industrial Revolution, has so allowed us to orchestrate our lives so that we just feel like we don't ever have to be involved with other people. We feel like we don't have to be involved in the community around us. We don't have to get to know our neighbors. We don't have to get to know our local governments. We don't have to build a relationship with a guy down at the grocery store. We can live in that tube that I talked about earlier that goes directly from us up to God in heaven if we want to. And because we live like that and we think like that, we're prone to think that our actions, our sins... Our sex lives only affect us. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone, it should be legal. That's the sort of libertarian argument here. One of the reasons why, although I very much agree with many libertarian thinkers, thinkers I could never be a libertarian, is because they believe that anybody can do whatever they want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But that's just not true, friends. That's not the way that God has designed this world to work. 
what you do in the privacy of your own homes will affect the world in which you live. It will affect your community. It will affect your nation. Now, for the old covenant people of God, the way that it affected them was very unique. God promised covenant blessings if they would walk in obedience, and he promised that he would rain down covenant curses if they walked in sin and disobedience. And so the Israelites had to be very concerned that their neighbors were not in sexual sin because if that sort of thing became prominent and accepted and normalized and even celebrated, God would rain down his covenant curses on them. But just because we're not Israel doesn't mean that that reality is still not alive and well for us just in a different way. So let me just pause and say, we are not Israel. America is not God's chosen people. God's covenant curses and covenant blessings will not come down upon us based on our sex lives. But that doesn't mean that our sex lives, particularly our sexual sins, will not affect us as a nation. They already do. Whatever sins a nation tolerates, it will be hurt by. Whatever sins a nation normalizes, it will be hurt by. Whatever sins a nation celebrates, it will be hurt by. I'm just going to give you one example. I'm not going to talk about gay marriage. That's, that's the easy one. And I think many people already think that evangelicals are overly obsessed with LGBT issues, although I don't think we are. I think it's the fight that's been brought to our doorstep. I'm going to talk about something that has kind of been uh, too easily accepted by evangelical American Christians. Divorce. Divorce and adultery, which tend to go hand in hand. So if you consider these twin sins of adultery and divorce and the way our nation has accepted them, you can see very clearly the way that our society has been damaged. Society is not just a word that means a bunch of people. Society is composed of units, namely families. And families are composed of individuals, parents and children. Now, what happens in a family when adultery takes place is when the husband and the wife experience relational turmoil and they get a divorce, it doesn't just affect them. It affects their children. I could just go on and on quoting statistics about how parent, children and families of divorce have higher rates of emotional issues, higher rates of substance abuse, higher rates of incarceration, lower rates of economic activity and wealth accumulation. Just, it's just a known fact that when, when the parent's relationship crumbles, the children suffer for it. Now, that family unit, when it begins to crumble, not just a one-off, but when a bunch of those family units begin to crumble in a society, the society sees the consequences of that. A society that has higher rates of drug abuse, higher rates of criminalization, higher rates of mental health issues, all of those, it will suffer tremendously. More broken homes equals a weaker society. So friends, even though we're not Israel, I do want you just to encourage. Really what I want to do is challenge this myth that says that whatever I do in my bedroom is my business because it doesn't hurt anyone else other than me. It's just not true. You may not see the damage immediately on a daily basis every time you get in your car or go into the grocery store, but that doesn't mean that the damage is not taking place. Now let's focus in a little bit and talk about the church. In chapter 20, 
verse 22. The Lord tells his covenant people very plainly what will happen to them if they tolerate this unholy activity in their midst. Look there with me. Back to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. God says that if his people persist in these sins, they will be vomited out of the land. That is, they will be expelled from the land. Now, earlier in the book of Leviticus, we saw how the promised land is like a shadow of heaven. Right? The people of God have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They travel through the wilderness and they go to the promised land. We've been rescued from the slavery of sin. We travel through the wilderness of this fallen world until God takes us home to be with him forever in heaven. We've seen elsewhere in scripture that these land promises are ultimately fulfilled like every other promise in Christ. So we, the New Testament people of God, we're not waiting for a strip of dirt in the Near East as our great and final reward. What we're waiting for is heaven where we get to go be with God forever. And so what you see in the New Testament is that this same kind of language is still applied to God's people. But instead of being warned about being vomited out of the land, not being able to stay in the land, we, the New Testament people, are warned about our inability to enter into heaven. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 9 through 10. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, if you don't Walk faithfully according to God's commandments and statutes, you will not inherit the land. In the New Testament, if you do not walk faithfully according to God's statutes, you will not inherit heaven. You will not inherit God himself. Friends, do not be deceived as you go back out into this world. Your eternal joy is inextricably linked to your sex life here and now. You may have compartmentalized your sex life away from your spiritual life. Your sexuality is over here. Your spirituality is over here. But that's not how God has built this world to exist. What you do with your body is very much an act of worship or rebellion. So how are you using your body? Are you holy? With your sexuality even as God is holy? Are you walking in his ways according to his statutes? Or have you begun to adopt the customs of the Canaanites? 
has this hyper-sexualized culture help you to feel at home in your sexual sin? If so, you should know that all those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter if you're a member of this church. It doesn't matter that you show up every Sunday and Wednesday. It doesn't matter how much money you put in the offering plate. It doesn't matter how many poor people you help or how much virtue signaling you do on Facebook. If you practice these things, you will not go to heaven. Now, Sean, what about what Jesus said about you know, not just what we do with our lives, but also what we think in our hearts. Yes, that's true, and we could talk about that in another sermon. But this morning, I want to talk about how we are actually living. Because it is all too often the case that these things, surprisingly, in the church, are accepted. Men cheat on their wives and then come to church the next Sunday, and no one has anything to say to them about it. Boyfriend and girlfriend in the church are very obviously living together, having sex. No one has anything to say about it. People who are practicing homosexual lifestyles are serving in leadership in the church, allowed as members into the church, even as they practice their homosexual lifestyle, and no one has anything to say about it. Is it true that you shouldn't lust after women and men in your heart? Of course that's true. But before we even get there, I just need to talk about this. We need to make sure that we're not doing this. Paul explains very clearly in these verses uh, that we read from 1 Corinthians 6 uh, what I just said to you, but, but he doesn't stop there. So go back with me to 1 Corinthians 6 and, and look at verse 11. He says, And such were some of you, right? Sexually immoral, adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals. Such, such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So in the first breath, Paul warns very seriously, very plainly, he's not trying to dance around it to make people feel comfortable. Hey, if you do these things, you're going to hell. But then he says to the people in the church, I know you. I know that this used to be you. And by God's grace, as I look out amongst you, I see that it's not you. I see real evidence that you have been changed by God's grace. And brothers and sisters, I also want to add to my warning to this church that I see evidence of God's grace. I see us fighting sexual immorality in our midst. I see us willing to have hard conversations. I know about repentance that's taking place. And I'm blown away. I know that the Spirit of God is alive and well in our midst and that He is sanctifying us to keep us holy. Because friends, at the end of the day, if the message of this sermon is you better white knuckle it, you better find a way to fight that sin and kill that sin and put it to death because you don't want to go to hell, do you? That's not what God is saying to us this morning. It's you better fight that sin, you better put that sin to death, you better not be unholy, you better be holy like I'm holy, and the good news of the gospel is that I'm going to give you the ability to do that. I'm going to put my spirit in you so that you can fight and live like I'm calling you to live. Friends, if it was up to us, we couldn't do it. We wouldn't do it. We wouldn't want to have anything to do with it. It's only by God's grace that we've experienced any measure of success in mortifying our flesh and following Jesus faithfully with our sex lives. Now, if you're here this morning and you're still living in sexual sin, 
you need to know that Jesus can take that away from you. He can lead you away from that. He can bring you into life of sexual holiness. I, I went and prayed a prayer at uh, a, a big thing at the courthouse for victims of sexual abuse and, uh, and uh, spousal abuse and all diff- just different kinds of abuse. And uh, before I prayed, I stood up and I told everyone there that I used to hit women. And I didn't tell them everything that I had done. I didn't tell them about other ways that I had sexually taken advantage of women and abused women before I became a Christian. I wanted to, though, because I wanted them to know that Jesus really can change us. He really can take away all of that lust and sin that lives in our hearts, and he can make us new. He can make us clean. And the promise of the gospel is that he can do that for you if you would just turn away from your sin. If you would see that sin in the same way that he sees that sin, and if you would hate it in the same way that he hates it, and if you would trust in him, he'll save you. And more good news of the gospel is that you don't have to make up for that sexual sin. You don't have to try to work your way back into his good graces. You don't have to try to do enough good deeds or live a certain sexual lifestyle in order to make up for your sexual sins. All of that has been put on Jesus. He's paid the price for all of that. All that you have to do is follow him. Now, before closing, I want to give one more point of application. Uh, We live in a world where some of these sexual sins uh, are still politely tolerated. So you think about like adultery. You know, people aren't like rooting for adultery, but it's kind of like, hey, I'll mind my own business, right? Some of these sins are celebrated. You think about fornication, which is, you know, everyone sleeping with everyone in every movie and every TV show you watch. You, watch, you go back and you rewatch Friends and you realize it's just like 10 series of celebrating fornication, okay? Now, some of these sins are still a little taboo or very taboo. So you think about bestiality and incest, right? People aren't really excited about those things and they would pretty easily condemn them. So as we stand on God's word and say what it says about sins like bestiality or incest, we probably won't get much pushback. You know, the world probably won't hate it that you call bestiality an abomination. They may not love the word, but they'll be like, yeah, that's not good. But to call something like homosexuality or fornication an abomination... They will hate you for that. You're attacking their God. And they will hate you for it. You will lose your job. You will lose your friends. You may lose some family members. The social media mob may come for you. You may even, in fact, be physically attacked for saying these things. Now, when the pressure When the squeeze comes, will you stand on God's word? Will you say that these things are in fact an abomination? I don't mean we use the word. I don't care if you use the word abomination. There may in fact be a better English word to translate the Hebrew word that God uses here to talk about his hatred. No, friends, what I mean is, will you say, God hates this sin.
Will you count the cost of following Jesus? We live in a time where many professing Christians not only tolerate these sins, but celebrate them. Lutheran ministers advocating for ethically sourced pornography. Entire denominations giving themselves over to the LGBT agenda. Fornication and adultery going undisciplined in theologically conservative churches. Professing evangelicals who think that abortion is a complicated issue that we should take some time to talk about before condemning. These professing Christians have been influenced by the sins of the culture in which they live. They have fallen into the same trap that Satan has set to ensnare God's people for thousands of years. In Romans 1, Paul says this, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. One of the things that you see in chapter 20, particularly around verse 4, is that God anticipates that some people want to try to stop these capital punishments. God says, if they sacrifice their babies, you kill them. And he anticipates that someone's going to try to stop that. And he says, if anyone tries to stop that, you kill them. I think Paul is drawing from that well here in Romans 1. You know that people deserve to die for doing these things. That's what God's justice demands. And yet, you're going to try to go along with it. You may even, in fact, approve of it. Friends, you need to know that there is no neutral ground for us as Christians when it comes to these matters. We must categorically reject these sins in both our practice and our teaching. Now, I understand that none of us want to be seen as judgmental. Jesus warned us we have to be very careful of hypocrisy. And I've learned in my own life to speak about sexual sin with a kind of humility that only my failures could have wrought in my heart. But humility, true humility... It's not saying, well, I watched porn too, so I can't really say anything to you about your sexual sin. Sexual humility says, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm repenting. But that doesn't change the fact that God has said what God has said. True humility is listening to God, believing God, and affirming God's word, regardless of your own sin and regardless of what it may cost you. Brothers and sisters, we need wisdom to sort this all out. We need an abundance of wisdom. And the good news, one of the promises in the New Testament is that if we seek wisdom, if we ask God for wisdom, he will give it to us. As we're trying to figure out what it looks like to approve or to not approve of certain sexual sins, do I go to the wedding? Do I not go to the wedding? Do I have dinner with this guy? Do I not go to lunch with this girl? Do I, should I retweet something or post a like of something on Facebook or whatever the kids are doing these days, and you're trying to, okay, what exactly is approval? What is acceptance? What is celebration? How do I stand against this but do so in a way that communicates love and grace? Brothers and sisters, you just need a lot of wisdom to be able to do that, and God has promised us that he will give us that wisdom. But one of the, one of the main ways that you will get that wisdom is just by regularly participating in the life of the church where you're being poured into by God's word, you're talking with other brothers and sisters, and you're looking and you're learning and you're practicing together. So Lord, give us the wisdom to follow you wherever you lead and to stand on your truth. Let's pray.
Lord, you have humbled us this morning. You've showed us our own sin. You've showed us your holiness. But now, Lord, we need you to equip us as we go back out into the world, as we do battle with our flesh, with Satan and with this world, as we strive for holiness. We need your spirit to equip us, to drive us forward. Would you move, Lord? Would you help us as a church to represent you well in the city? We ask that, we beg that, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.